I used to quite often, uh, I was lighting cigarettes way back when, uh, when I used to put loads of hairspray on, set the front of my fringe on fire. <laughs> See, this is these are things that only emo kids will remember. Just the mm-hmm. sheer danger that was having you having <laughs> you sweep that low hairspray. Yeah. 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 But it looked <coughs> amazing. Hey up, I'm Joe Heathcote and this is Consistently Eccentric, a British history podcast where we try to make sense of some of the lesser known and more absurd people and events these islands have produced. So let's get started with This story begins during the reign of George V. George V. One, two, three, four, five. Yeah, we're we're, we're into the twentieth uh, century here. Oh, okay, got you. Yeah, I know who we. Yeah, fine. yeah, the bald one. Yeah, yeah, because on May nineteenth, nineteen twenty-three, Peter Wildblood was born in the little town of Alassio. I hope that's right. In northern Italy, which is around eighty. Wildblood. Yeah, with an e. What a brilliant name! Like Oscar Wilde. So Wilde blood. Uh, Alassio in northern Italy, around 80 miles from the border with France. So it's right on the Riviera. Nice, nice place to be. Brilliant. His father, Henry, had retired from a career as an engineer in India and had been happily living the life of an expat in the sunshine of the Riviera, naturally shunning the locals while taking a position as a secretary of the British Tennis Club. Because, you know, you want the sunshine, but do you really want to have to learn Italian or integrate in any way no no just go over there and do your own thing yeah with other british people yeah i mean he calls himself british he spent most of his life living in india and then he promptly moved to italy yeah that happened quite a lot didn't it Mm. i think but it was people just go over and colonize and they're like nope this is britain but it was there seeing the beautiful olive-skinned mediterranean people that he experienced a rush of blood to the head and decided that it was time for him to give marriage a second go-around, despite being in his late 50s. His first wife having died Fine. a few years earlier. I don't even know if she managed Did to make it to her. Italy before before um, she died. She may have died in India. His new bride, with the lovely non-Italian name of Winifred, <laughs> was actually born in Argentina. And although Peter Wildblood never specifies whereabouts in Argentina... I'm willing to bet that it was Patagonia. I think this for a few okay. reasons. <laughs> Firstly, she was the daughter of a sheep farmer, and they had the surname, before she got married, of Evans. Okay. And she was likely born just after the second wave of Welsh emigration to the area around 1887. So, you know yes. about uh, the Welsh... So that's conclusion. The Welsh... Um, no, I don't... No, I don't... I don't know... Enlighten me. So, like, um, in the mid-1800s, Welsh industry was suffering massively, and there was Mm. a scheme that was dreamt up to go and move to this uninhabited area of southern Argentina called Patagonia, which they were told would be a paradise. So about 150 Welsh people moved out there, and it was an absolute shithole. It was terrible (laughs) land, but... They worked hard, they irrigated it, they made a community. More Welsh people came over to live. They made it into some of the most um, profitable farming land. And suddenly the Argentinian government, who'd been kind of laughing at them, decided that they were going to take over <laughs> and try to sort what, of... take it back? Yeah, drive the Welshness out of Patagonia. But it's, it's always remained um, one of the few places in the world, aside from Wales, where Welsh is spoken by most of the population. Oh really? Mm. They probably probably more than Wales now because mm. that got beaten out of them. Didn't yeah, they? I mean, <laughs> it'd be interesting. I don't know, but it may be that there are more Welsh speakers in Argentina than there are in Wales, just because of the size yeah. of the yeah, the area. I mean, there's there's more of Patagonia, I'm sure, than there is of Wales. So, if your population density is about the same, you'd naturally have more Welsh speakers there than you would in Wales. We'll have to look mm. it up afterwards. Anyway. That's interesting, yeah. The other important thing about this marriage, you know, aside from the fact that she was of Welsh stock, was the fact that she was a full 30 years younger than Henry. That's cringy, isn't it? Yeah. Now, if the roles had been reversed, there would obviously have been no question of the couple having children. 
you know, if it was her getting a toy boy, kids wouldn't have been on the table. But no, no, no. As it was, Henry's aging sperm was still viable. And at the age of 60, he found himself with a newborn son. So oh, can you imagine? Yeah. He'd had other kids before. He did have children from his first marriage, but he's starting that parent train again at the age of 60. I Why had my kids when we were in our you know, mid to late 20s, and I'm tired. So I can't imagine how this bloke <laughs> felt. Yeah. Now, determined to ensure that his little boy received a proper education proper British education, he decided to move his family back to England when Peter was three. Okay. Now, given that Wildblood is a name of Lancashire origin, it was mentioned in the Doomsday Book, he naturally chose to settle in... Not there. (laughs) Did he? East Sussex. (laughs) Okay, fine. Around 30 miles south of London. Because when I say he wanted to give his son a proper British education, he wanted him to get a London education. A self education. Yeah, he wanted him to be able to schmooze the movers and shakers who all mm. obviously lived in London because Peter's family were rich. And they were rich enough that they could afford a series of nannies for him. Mm. His abiding memory of these women was that one told him once that if he ate too many sweets, he would get infested with worms that would bore holes in his bones. <laughs> well, do you know, like... Your teeth could... Is that like a... No, uh, specifically, um, apparently he saw a a child with um, bandages on his legs and he asked the nanny why did the kid have bandages on his legs and the nanny spun this story that he was infested with worms that were eating through his leg bones because he'd had too many sweets. And it terrified... Terrified Peter. Brutal but brilliant story. Was it brilliant? Because it didn't just stop him eating sweets, it stopped him eating practically everything. He refused to eat almost all food for a good portion of his childhood (laughs) because he was just terrified that things would grow in him if he ate anything. I used to think when you used to drink milk that your teeth would get bigger. So, you know, you see people with like... Oh, with the calcium. Especially the royals would have like horsey teeth. Oh, you thought that was because they got a lot of milk. Because they were rich and they had a lot of milk. That they got bigger teeth. I love childhood and logic. And I didn't want big. I didn't want bigger teeth. So you shunned all milk. I used to. And now you have to, osteoporosis. You, <laughs> <laughs> I also used to think that girls didn't poop. Well, I, I'm sorry to report that they do. Just as much, if not more. Depending on what <laughs> they've eaten, obviously. But the the non-eating thing for Peter. I mean, he didn't poop a lot. And when he did, there was it was like rabbit poos, you know, small pellets, because absolutely everything... Nest, nest quick. His starving body was sucking all the nutrition out of what was going in. But because he was basically malnourished um, by choice, it ensured that when he was sent to boarding school at the age of seven, he was very small for his age and was quite sickly. And because he was going to a boarding school on the outskirts of London, this led to him being mercilessly bullied as a sop which was the term at the time that was used for anyone who was not good at sport. Oh, okay. So any anyone who was more of the academic bent um, was a sop. Was a sop. Yeah, and okay. should be shunned and ridiculed. We used to call them boffins. Did you? I, don't, I think yeah. that's slightly more amiable than a sop. It's also very southern. We called them... What, a boffin? Yeah, we did, we did not call them boffins. That in itself is quite a posh word. Isn't it? Oh, you, You're such a boffin. You boffin. <laughs> I didn't really think about it until you just said it. That is funny, isn't it? <laughs> what a boffin. Although, to be fair, we did use SWAT, so... SWAT. That, that also no, has quite a posh that, connotation is... to it. Yeah. Oh, fiddlesticks. Rather than trying to get better at sport, in order to fit in, Peter learned how to fake illnesses to get away from his tormentors. This allowed him plenty of time for reading, as he literally would spend at least half of any given term in the sick bay. Uh, and he ended up reading up on almost every subject imaginable, learning enough... Because la- he was fake sick. Because he was fake sick. sick, and he had nothing else to do, yeah. so he was just inhaling books. And he accidentally okay. learned enough Latin, Greek and history that he was able to win a scholarship to a public school at the age of 13. 
No way. Yeah, so Good he fell him. arse backwards into a scholarship because he was trying to avoid playing rugby with the bigger <laughs> Sports. boys. Sports. Yeah. <laughs> now, it was while at public school that puberty hit for Peter Wildblood. Yes. His blood finally got wild. And he was shocked to discover that his sexual thoughts were directed solely towards other men. Mm. Specifically, the strong athletic men on the rowing team. As Peter okay. said himself, <clears throat> the physical perfection of an athlete had always appeared to me more beautiful than the body of a woman. Only a man could give me that feeling of protection against an unfriendly world for which I longed. I mean... It's a very understandable response, relate. isn't it? Yeah, I, I can relate. No, it's fine. I mean, I, d- I don't think it hurt that he was in an old boys' school, so when he said the body of a woman, is he imagining his nanny? <laughs> That's the only woman he's had a meaningful relationship with to this point, it seems. So maybe that, that whole bone-eating thing is like put him off women for yeah, life. Yeah, I like, wouldn't be surprised. No. Peter wasn't able to find his athlete at his public school by the time he left in 1941 at the age of 18. But he had managed to win a place at Oxford University. Oh, good on him. Yeah, pretty good. He stayed at Trinity College for 10 days before he decided that it was a bit boring with everyone off fighting the war, and he decided to join the war effort himself by enlisting in the RAF. Okay. So he got there, and all of the <clears throat> all of the masculine, manly men that he wanted to, to see war. were at war. So he's like, well, I'll go to war too. I'll go there. <laughs> That's where they'll be. That's where I want to be. It was in basic training that Peter Wildblood first came across people from the working classes. Mm. He fully expected them to tease him for being terrible at practically every bit of drill that he was expected to do. Because that was his experience from public schools. It was, if you're not good at something, everyone's going to rip the piss. You get ridiculed. Yeah, and probably shove your head down the toilet. All the classics, wedgies. He was delighted, though, when his fellow trainees instead took him under their wing and helped him to get the hang of military life. Yes, working class Yeah, he reported for the rest of his life that he didn't see any problem with um, consorting with people of a lower rank because he'd found that, generally speaking, they were much nicer people. (laughs) So why why would you try and fit in with the snobs when you could be just accepted for who you are by the rank and file? The non-boffins. Yes. Having passed basic training, Peter was sent to South Africa to learn to fly. Of course, at the time, it was southern Rhodesia. We're not going to use those terms. So he was sent to South Africa to learn to fly planes. Because he was going to be a pilot, you know. Okay. Unfortunately... Why did they have to send them to there to learn to fly? Couldn't they learn to fly here? I, I don't know. I I guess because they were less likely to be um, caught up in any um, aerial out, fighting. Yeah, I mean, yeah. if you were learning over... Britain, what with the skies being full of German planes just across the the channel, you could be going up to yeah. learn to fly, and suddenly it's, it would be down. akin to you know like a learner driver suddenly finding themselves in the Dakar rally. You're just not you're not <laughs> at that level yet. You need to go somewhere safe to to learn. Yeah, but unfortunately, much like Launchpad McQuack, Peter never quite got the hang of landing, so he could fly fine. He could get it off the ground, he could do all the manoeuvres, yeah. <clears throat> but when it came to getting it back on the ground, we hit trouble. Hard. <laughs> he had an unfortunate habit of hitting the ground with the tail of the plane rather than the landing gear, as is traditional. Okay. And after causing yeah. damage to multiple tiger moths, it was finally decided that he would be better off taking some kind of ground-based supporting role. You know, like we, yeah. You've totaled ten planes, Peter. Really, <laughs> no more. Yeah, that's the limit. Mm-hmm. We know that you're. These cost thousands. <laughs> we know you're at Oxford, and that we have to give you special dispensation. But that's too much. Even these ones that are made out of wood, it's too much. Passing on the idea of becoming a cook, Peter eventually took on the role of a meteorologist. This entailed living in a mud hut in the middle of South Africa, and occasionally reporting on the conditions which Peter claimed was a very easy job because in South Africa it is hot for nine months of the year, then rainy for three months of the year. Okay. So in terms of providing them with readings, it's like, it's hot. It's still hot. It's going to be hot tomorrow. What do you want from me? You know where we are. Sounds like a bit of a cushy job, doesn't it? Yeah, he had a lot of free time. 
And he spent yeah. most of his time sketching the local scenery and the local people, adopting yeah. a cheetah as a pet. Of course. And making friends with a monkey that he named Sinatra. Okay. Peter also tried on several occasions to embark on a romantic relationship with a female. Okay. But these experiments simply confirmed that he had an itch that no woman could ever scratch. So he tried his best Fair. to conform and he thought, well, yeah. it, it, I'm guessing it's the same for a lot of people who went through public school and find they're attracted to men. It's like, was it situational? Is it just because I didn't have any women around me? Yeah. That I was, you know, it's any port in a storm. I, I have these raging hormones and they have to go somewhere. So he was like, mm-hmm. I'll give it a good old British try with all of these ladies in the local villages. And nope, nope, just didn't work Absolutely out. Absolutely not. No. <laughs> After the war, he returned to Oxford to get his degree. But despite, you know, his, his scholarships and his extensive reading, he only managed to get a 2-1. As he'd spent most of his time, when he should have been studying exploring the gay scene of London with an unnamed foreign prince. So he'd made friends with a foreign prince and that foreign prince was very well connected and was more than happy to take Peter in his wake, going to all the haunts, all the gentlemen's clubs that catered um, to the discerning male. Of course, at this time, it was still illegal to engage in homosexual activity in Britain. However, it was generally known that the law would not be enforced if you were discreet. And considering Peter was meeting members of the judiciary and sitting MPs in some of the clubs he frequented, he could be forgiven for thinking that if these men felt safe enough to engage in relationships, then he had nothing to fear as long as he was careful. Because he was a nobody. He was just a former RAF meteorologist. He wasn't like a peer of the realm or something where, you know, he had a reputation at this point to... To protect. Being, you know, an ex-meteorologist, he needed money. Yes. And with no serviceable skills, Peter decided he'd write a play about his time in South Africa. Fine. I mean, I, He's whenever been I'm around with all those theatre types. Yeah. Well, whenever I'm hard up, the first I'm... thing I do is I write a three-act play, and see if I can't get it <laughs> off. You know. <laughs> not not one of the bigger theatres. I'm not asking for much. No, just a short run, maybe in Brighton or something. Just a small run, yeah. yeah. Well, it did work. It became a modest success and he gained £200 and an opportunity at a job writing for the Daily Mail on a salary of £6 a week as a junior reporter in the regional office at Leeds. So he's moved up north. Okay. But he got, right. a, he got yeah. a job out of it. They went, oh. He, he wrote a rather witty play. I wonder if he I can... I love your play. Come write the news. Yeah, come write the... Come, <laughs> come, tell us what's going on in Yorkshire. I'm sure I'm sure you're up for it as a cub reporter. He worked hard. And his big break finally came when he was sent to cover the British Medical Association conference in Harrogate. Oh, one of the yes. big gets. And Harrogate's yeah. a lovely place. The original Betty's nice. Tea Rooms is there. If you if you're on your way to York, I've been, stop off in Harrogate. They have oh, all of must. the yeah, oh, they have the um the Museum of um, Medical they have a medical museum that talks about all the water cures that they use because they have like seven natural springs there. It's lovely. They've got all that old um, Victorian, like, cast iron shop frontage, like, on all the shops, haven't they? It's, it's, it's really beautiful. sympathetically done. I didn't yeah. mean to say effing then, sorry. It's all right. I always put on that there's explicit language, even when there's not, because I want people to okay, think fine. our podcast has an edge. <laughs> <clears throat> but yeah, he went to. Um, cover the British Medical Association conference and he decided to write a piece about a doctor who had given a passionate speech condemning government plans to implement something called a national health service. (sighs) And of course, the Daily Mail was strongly opposed to the idea of a national health service because they are always, always on the wrong side of history. So they loved the article he wrote. And because, you know, he'd written something that fitted their agenda... The editors promoted Peter and gave him a position in the main office on Fleet Street. So he's coming back... For being against the NHS. For reporting on someone who was against the NHS in a way okay, that fine. might so convince he... Daily Mail readers that, you know, universal health care is in some way bad for them. And they went, brilliant, we like the cut of your jib, sir. Come to Fleet Street. 
we will continue to bamboozle the easily confused. <laughs> Peter became an expert at separating his professional life from his personal life. Because would you believe that he worried that the reporters he was working with at the Daily Mail might frown upon the fact that he um, was attracted to other men? Mm, yeah. He was, he was concerned about what they might say. So he, he was living two lives, essentially. His day life where he went in and he wrote his stories and then he'd go out and enjoy uh, the theatre. He'd enjoy uh, going to the certain clubs that he liked to frequent. Had a large circle of friends. And he believed that with this separation, he could now settle into a comfortable routine of a bachelor for the next few decades at the very least. Yeah. He found his niche. He was making enough money to be able to afford to live. Not extravagantly, but he had his own flat in London. Yeah, and enough. He yeah. always had somewhere to be. You know, There was always some entertainment yeah. going on. Then he met and became friends with a peer of the realm called Lord Montague of Bewley. Yeah. Lord Montague was in PR and was amazingly well-connected, but he was disliked by many other peers of the realm as he refused to adhere to the traditional class system and was determined to be friends with anyone that he found to be interesting. Okay. He was also not... Well, that's, that sounds nice. Yeah, he, he, would, he was that guy who would throw parties and there would be a bunch of American GIs and there would be, you know, some jazz singers in the corner... And then over the other side, he'd have brought in some foreign dignitaries who just so happened to be visiting the country and he kind of convinced to come. You know, it was just the entire... Like a melting pot. Yeah. If, if he found them and he thought they were interesting, they'd come to one of his parties and he'd pair people up and, you know, introduce Sounds people fun. to each other and just try and break down those social barriers. Yeah. You know, it, was, it didn't matter who you were, what job you had. If he found you interesting, you were in. He was also not particularly discreet about the fact that he was bisexual. Okay. In the summer of 1952, Lord Montague offered Peter Wildblood the use of his beach hut at Bewley um, for the summer holidays because Peter had a lot of stuff to do. He had a lot of work to be getting on with. And he was planning to use it as a retreat, essentially, for the summer. But he eventually agreed to take a friend with him, RAF serviceman Eddie McNally. A friend or more than a friend? No, just a friend. Both okay. both definitely homosexual, but just friends. It was a plutonic relationship. Okay. Uh, Eddie McNally was a working-class Scotsman who had developed a habit of just turning up at Peter's flat in London to play his new gramophone records and to get a hot meal of scrambled <laughs> eggs. Fine. And he describes this guy as someone who was completely not his type and someone who you didn't really like on first meeting, but he just kind of kept turning up until... <laughs> You tolerated you got him. used to him. Yeah, and then it became <laughs> just by re- repeated, you know, um, meetings. You just kind of, oh, he's a friend now. He spent enough time with me that I have <laughs> to class him as a friend. Forced his way in. Yeah, he's, he is my friend based on the time we spent together, not based on any shared interests or the fact that we actually actively like each other particularly. Fine. Peter was not sure basically why he was fond of Eddie and the way he explained it was basically this beach hut was very spartan there was no electricity there was no running water and it would be useful to have someone to share in the chores you know because there needed to be a daily trip to the main house to get water in some milk churns and it's like Eddie can do that while I'm writing that'll be the sort of division of labor he can have a free holiday if he does the work so I can spend more time writing yeah then McNally he asked if he could bring another friend, another RAF serviceman called Joshua Reynolds. But this was only allowed on the condition that Peter and Lord Montague got a chance to meet Joshua first. Okay. Naturally, this was achieved by Lord Montague booking four tickets to watch a play called Dial M for Murder. (gasps) Yes. So they went, they watched it, they had a meal afterwards. Joshua seemed a good sort, so it agreed, yeah, he can tag along. Well, well, there's only two rooms in this beach hut and we now have three people um, staying there, but I'm sure we'll make do. Yeah. On the very first evening in the beach hut, Lord Montague decided to visit Peter and the airmen with a few guests from his own house to have an impromptu party. Because that's what Lord Monty did. Yeah. Well, it's his, his property, isn't it, I guess? Yeah, and he was celebrating as he just opened oh. the National Motor Museum on his estate. Brilliant. He was into cars because his father... Um, had been the person to commission the uh, 
spirit of ecstasy you know the the little statuette that's on the front of all rolls royces his father had been involved in that and if you want to learn more about um the story of rolls royces episode 22 of our podcast covers it way back when way back when now during the course of the evening at this party mcnally and reynolds got insanely drunk and obnoxious like really over the top drunk and Peter realised there was yeah. no way he'd be able to tolerate them, not even for an evening, you know, and he was supposed get to be them, there for weeks. Gone. Well, it, it was like, yeah. this was a mistake. I'm going to have to do something about this. He was saved by a gentleman farmer and friend of Lord Monty called Major Michael Pitt Rivers. And he was of unimpeachable upper-class stock because he was a descendant of William Pitt, the former Prime Minister. Oh, okay. So they were running in posh circles. Oh, yes. Pitt Rivers suggested that rather than staying at the beach hut, the three men could stay on his estate, where they could benefit from running water, electricity, and far more space. So basically, if you if you come and stay with me, Peter, you can basically avoid these two guys for the rest of your holiday. He's poaching them, though. Well, I don't He's think... Poaching them I don't think Monty. Lord Montague particularly cared. He, he, was, he was ephemeral. He was here, there, and everywhere. You know, he'd had his party in the beach. He's like, okay, you go off there. It's fun, isn't it? We all yeah. know each other. We all just spend time in each We're other's all houses. We're just having fun. Yeah. <laughs> what the salad days. The war is over and we can finally enjoy our freedom. So the holiday was saved. And Peter decided that it was finally time to rip that Band-Aid off. And he was going to spend a little bit less time with McNally after that. He wasn't going to answer the door when he heard a, a gruff Scots voice banging at his door, you know shouting that he bought a, a new record and he needed to somewhere where he could play it. He was just going to pretend he was out. Just, just turn yeah. the lights down. Just, no. <laughs> I'm not here. <clears throat> Unfortunately, that holiday in the summer of 1952 had already set in motion a series of events that would devastate Peter Wildblood's life. Because okay. almost, imme- got my attention. almost immediately after the end of World War Two. America had started to become terrified of the spread of communism, the Red yeah. Menace. This fear was crystallised when Senator Joseph McCarthy gave a speech in February 1950 listing suspected Soviet spies working in the State Department. This began a period of intense scrutiny of the personal lives of people working in government to ensure that anyone who either was a spy for the Soviets or could be turned was rooted out. How would they know that they could be turned? They'd have some skeletons in their closet, something that could be used for blackmail. You you do as I say now. Yeah, Yeah. I can hold this over you. We'll say this. Yeah. Yeah. And the investigation quickly added homosexuality as a reason for being unfit to hold government office in America. Because America, like Britain, was one of the few Western countries who still had laws banning all homosexual acts. And the reasoning given... Do you know... Being gay... Go was on. essentially leaving yourself open to blackmail. Okay. It's funny, because I just listened to a podcast with the about the head of the FBI. What was his name? Jagger Hoover, uh, famous trans... Well, yeah. he, he, was, uh, he was... I don't know that he was gay. trans. He was definitely... He definitely engaged in he, he homosexual had, acts, and he, he had, did cross-dress. Yeah. And he enforced these laws. Yeah, of course he did. One rule Which for him, mad, another rule it? for you. And no one at any point apparently had the self-awareness to realise that if they simply repealed the laws banning same-sex relationships, there would be no opportunities for blackmail. It's like, they could blackmail you because you're gay. It's like, well, why don't you make it fine for me to be gay? And then they won't. Oh, no, we're not doing that. Still a sin. (laughs) It's better if we just fire you from this job that you've held for the last 30 years. We've worked impeccably, uh, beyond reproach, you know. You've got to leave. And with Britain reliant on America for financial support following the devastation brought about by World War Two, the Americans were able to put pressure on the government in Westminster to begin a similar purge of gay people in England. Okay. And suddenly the established convention of being safe from arrest as long as you kept your relationships private was shattered. This period of persecution would become known as the Lavender Scare. Is this where, what's his name, gets in trouble? Bletchley Park, dude. What's his name? 
Alan Turing. Yes, this would be the, the thing the that rooted yeah. out Alan, Alan Turing uh, as being potentially, you know, somebody who literally cracked a code that helped to beat fascism. He might turn against the Brits, that guy, mm. because of his sexual orientation. It's like, no, no, don't think so. Why don't we judge him by, you know, all of the things that he did to help his country? <laughs> rather than yes. what he does in his private life. But yes, Lord Montague, he was very well-connected member of the House of Lords, who was also known to have homosexual leanings, so naturally he was immediately targeted. They wanted to dig up some dirt on him so that they could find a reason to have him disbarred from the House of Lords yeah. so he wouldn't be near any kind of government um, decision-making processes. In 1953... He had acted as a tour guide around um, Bewley for a group of Boy Scouts who were visiting. This had okay. this visit had not been organised by him; it had been organised by the Boy Scout, you know, by the Scout troop themselves. But he said, "Well, if yeah. you're coming to see my estates, I'll give you a guided tour because I can tell you the history of everything. You know, yeah. it, when you're walking around my motor museum, I can tell you more detail about these cars and their engines because people who like cars." like to give you lots of detail that you don't understand and you just have to yeah ooh pistons mm, that yeah ooh that does sound like a lot yes a lot good good during the course of the visit he decided that he'd go off down to the beach hut with a friend um a friend who was a photographer and filmographer called Kenneth Hume uh to bathe because okay. if you've got a beach hut you're going to use it. You're going to go and have a little dip in the sea. And what, if, mid-tour? No, he finished the tour and he was like, well, okay, you know, I was just doing this out because I'm going to go down to my beach or I'm going to go and have a bathe. And apparently yeah. a few of the Boy Scouts decided they also wanted to call off and have a swim. So he graciously said, oh, okay. yes, you can put your bits and bobs in my beach house. You can go for a swim, come back. All good. No problem. Yeah. A little bit later, Lord Montague discovered that an expensive camera of Kenneth Humes had gone missing from the beach hut. So he naturally phoned the police to report the theft. Yeah. He's like, well, I don't want to think ill of the Boy Scouts, but, but. it may be that one of them saw this really expensive camera and thought, it'd it, be lovely yeah. to own that, and I can't afford it. <gasps> the police got the camera, and what did they find? Well, the police arrived. But yeah. rather than investigating the loss of the camera, they accused Lord Montague and Hume of an indecent attack against one of the boys. They said that he tried to incite a young, innocent Boy Scout into committing homosexual acts. Okay. Coincidentally, this accusation occurred at the same time that the Home Secretary, Sir David Maxwell Fife, was calling for a new drive against male vice. So he'd just gone all in on the American plan of, let's root out every person who prefers same-sex relationships. Unfortunately for the Home Secretary, and as it turned out, Peter Wildblood, Lord Montague was acquitted at trial. This may have been in part due to the prosecution having to admit that the police had forged a date on Lord Montague's passport to try and place him in Britain when he was actually in France. Oh, naughty. Yeah. So they literally had to admit that they falsified evidence in order to try and build their case against this guy. Uh... But rather than just leave it, which you would when you've been embarrassed in that way and caught to be lying, the authorities decided yeah. that they would just have to find another excuse to put the Lord back on trial. So like, okay, okay you got away this time by being completely innocent of the charges but we brought against you, but we can, we'll get you. we can drum up as many charges as we need until eventually we have a jury that we can convince... <laughs> Because we're going to get better at forging evidence, you, you man. <laughs> they got their opportunity in 1954, when Eddie McNally, on his RAF base, was discovered to have a large amount of letters in his possession from male lovers and friends okay. who were openly discussing their lifestyle choices. Okay. Eddie was brought up onto charges, so he's court-martialed, and under questioning, he admitted to being a homosexual and gave the names of at least 24 other men with whom he had committed sexual acts. Okay. However, 
The letter that most interested the police was from Peter Wildblood because it mentioned the party at the beach hut on Lord Montague's estate. Uh, okay. Eddie and Joshua Reynolds were told that they would be immune from prosecution for their offences if they were willing to testify that they had been incited to homosexual acts by Lord Montague and his companions. A deal they were both more than willing to take. They've been put in like impossible situations though, haven't they? Like everyone in these scenarios. Like Oh yeah, they told Eddie and Joshua basically, basically either you go to prison if... for an extended period of time and we will throw the book at you and we will go after all of these people that you have letters from and destroy you everything or you agree to make these accusations against these three men. So against um Wild Blood, against Montague so been and against Pitt Rivers. To do it. Yeah. Yeah. So with absolutely no warning, on Saturday, January the 9th, at 8am, Peter Wildblood was woken by a loud knocking on his door and told that he was being arrested on suspicion of conspiracy to incite certain male persons to commit serious offences with other male persons. Okay. Peter's house was searched, despite the police having no warrant to do so. And he was prevented from seeing a solicitor for five hours while being constantly questioned. Two things that could be accurately described, even at that point in history, as highly illegal. Yeah. Regardless, as the Home Secretary was determined to make an example of Lord Montague, Peter, Lord Montague and Michael Pitt Rivers were remanded, with the press invited to come and make a massive story out of the whole affair. Because they wanted to make examples they're like we are we we want everyone to see that we are going after any sounds like a witch anyone. hunt to me it was and these lord montague was the big get it's like if we show everybody this is what happens if you are in a position of power and you are a practicing homosexual everyone else will fall into line <laughs> yeah cuz they're all going to be they're all going to turn into communists <laughs> Yeah, the, uh, well, the Soviets yeah. are just going around soliciting men in toilets and anybody who agrees is like, you work for us now, you're a spy. Yeah, just mad. All across London, spies were being made. Dozens of spies every night were being made in the, in the discreet gentlemen's clubs. <laughs> the press, of course, included Peter's colleagues at the Daily Mail, who were very shocked uh, to learn of um, okay. you know, his leanings. Yeah. Now, the Daily Mail at first offered to pay Peter's legal costs, but they quickly decided okay. better of it and instead disowned him in his hour of need. Because, right. as I've said before, the Daily Mail is always on the wrong side of history. They are, aren't they? They're like, like always. we would like to help you, but we're actually supportive of the strong new stance this Home Secretary has taken. It's, this uh-huh. is what will make Britain great again. Um, and, yeah. unfortunately... Like you're bagging that drum ever since. Yeah, your collateral damage, Peter. You you wrote some great stories. I mean, we didn't manage to stop the NHS, but I'm I'm gl- sure eventually we'll manage to convince people that they would prefer a private healthcare system. Um, but we can't <laughs> support you in this. Wonderfully, though, and this is a genuine highlight for me of this story. Two people who didn't abandon Peter were his parents. Yes, and I say parents plural because his father was still alive being 91 at the time of Peter's arrest. That's so sweet. And despite being a man, brought up literally with Victorian values. Because, you you know, he he grew up in the 1860s, 70s and 80s. Yeah. When he found out for the first time that his son was gay, he offered nothing but support and love. Didn't matter to him one bit. And Peter all through his life had been, do I tell my parents... I don't want to destroy them. And when it finally came out in the worst possible way, his parents went, we don't give a shit. You're our son. We're backing you to the hilt. We'll be there for you, whatever happens. Also supportive of homosexuals in England at the time, amazingly, the Church of England. Really? Yep. Who published a pamphlet... I'm surprised. They published a pamphlet called The Problem of Homosexuality. An interim report. And I know it's not a good start, referring to it as a problem, uh, might no. might indicate that they were kind of negative towards it. But what they said in their interim report was that, in their opinion, homosexual behaviour between two consenting adults 
could be seen as less harmful to society than adultery and that there were no grounds for treating it as a crime. They then demanded, the Church of England demanded an immediate governmental inquiry into the current state of the law as a result. Do you think it's because the Church of England was full of homosexuals as well? (laughs) And they were like, They were panicking. (laughs) They're coming for us. (laughs) That's, That's one possibility. But I think also it's the, you know, what's more damaging to society was the question they were going out to answer. And they're like, well, it's it's adultery. It's families that are getting broken up by sex outside of marriage. It's not these people who are finding... And you can say it's sort of, you know, behind closed doors, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. But the only reason it's like that and that they have to be so secretive is because it's illegal. It's illegal. They're not harming anybody else. And the old sort of... The thing is, it's not even that long ago when you think about it. Oh, no, no. This is, what, less... This is, like, 80 what, years ago? 1954... Yeah, well, like talking eighty yeah. years ago, something like that, and that it it makes perfect sense. It's like the the reason that they have these people are having to be so secretive, and it seems so dirty. It's and... Less than that, sixty years, mm. something like that. But the reason you my know, dad was alive then, yeah. You you make something illegal, people have to be secretive. So then you can go look at them. They know, they know that it's wrong. Look at them being so smutty and behind yeah. closed doors and all of these secrets mm-hmm. and things it's like no you made it like that they, they have to yeah. yeah because if they just walked in and went i'm looking for a man you'd arrest them yeah anyway despite the fact that the church of england were on board right on it was too late to prevent the trial for peter lord monty and um, pitt rivers and on march the 15th 1954 the trial began in the hall of Winchester Castle. Now, during nice. proceedings, the police admitted to searching the houses of all three of the defendants without warrants, and that for all three of the defendants, they withheld legal counsel for many, it's many so hours. Yeah. And at first, they tried to argue that they had to um, try and withhold legal counsel as they wanted to get all three of them at once, and they didn't want to give them time to corroborate their stories and talk and then one of the solicitors sort of said well I rang and asked if I could see my client and I was told that I couldn't see him because he was at that moment being charged which was a lie so surely that would like if that happened now that all of this would be thrown out well it should have been just just because of what the police have done yes but what the judge said is "Mm, yes all of these things aren't strictly within procedural guidelines but I am of the opinion that they were necessary and proportionate in order to, um, you know, be able to take these nefarious men into into custody. So he's basically like, the ends justify the means. Suspicious to me, like uh, the government have to be seen to be doing something, and this needs to go through, regardless of anything and the judge has basically been told yeah that it yeah. has to it's there. go through i'll allow this yeah. I'm, I'm going to allow it so, but it's completely irrational it's never happened i'm going to allow it <laughs> the government have told me i have to allow it mm. the prosecution their main argument was that these two poor simple working class airmen mcnally and reynolds They've been seduced by the riches that have been offered by the more affluent companions. So they pointed to the fact that um, Lord Montague had paid for tickets to the theatre for them. It's like, oh, that was him grooming these men, essentially. Um, That um, Peter Wildblood had lured McNally in by cooking him extravagant meals in his London apartment. And when he describes his flat, it's like it was basic. The hob was in the hall. That's how basic rundown his accommodation was. And it wasn't, you know, he's making him scrambled eggs. They tried to say that at the party had been a a Roman-style orgy where, you know, everyone had been (laughs) stripped down and oiled uh, rather than what it was. They were saying that champagne was served and they're like, no, it was cider. It was really rough and ready. (laughs) It was warm, horrid cider. 
And according to Peter, he's like, yes, there was a little bit of light petting and kissing going on, but there was nobody having sex. It's a party. It's like, what do you yeah. think happens at a house party? There's, it's very rare when you get a load of late 20, early 30-year-olds yes. in a public house party that they'll all just start stripping and having sex in front of each other. Yes, it's not a common yeah. practice. This is your imagination, judge and prosecutor. This is nothing to do with us. This reflects more on you uh, than it does on us. You are a homosexual, yeah. sir. <laughs> you're talking about this. I can see you're sweating and turning red as you're vividly describing these imaginary were scenes. Were you that at these parties? <laughs> and, uh, the next thing you know, they, they were smacking each other's bottoms. Oh, yes. Every cheek was red. And, oh, and the yelps of pain... We're just turning them on more. He's wearing his wig. Using his his wig to pat himself down. (laughs) We're going to have to take a 15-minute recess. (laughs) I'll be back after I've sorted out this this new issue that I've developed. It wasn't like they had a parade of witnesses who'd been at the party were corroborating this complete fantasy. Just making it up. It was literally these two airmen were giving what were clearly pre-prepared statements that they've been coached on to really so try and drive coached, home yeah. the immorality of what was, oh, you, you want to use my beach hall? That's fine. I'm just going to bring a few people down, do you mind? Just to, you know, do a bit of schmoozing, introduce them to you. We're having a party, we didn't want you to feel left out. So we'll bring the party to you. Yay! <clears throat> the argument that there had been a mass orgy um, and that these two airmen had almost tricked into participating was undermined slightly by the fact that they had been drinking cheap wine in a two-room beach hut which didn't have running water and that McNally was forced to admit that he'd been having affairs with men well before the date of the party and I say affairs because some of them he didn't know the real names of and were just like one-night stands but he also had formed more long-term romantic relationships including a relationship with a man named Jerry, who he had described in several letters as being his husband. Okay. So the idea that you can incite someone to homosexuality, you can be the cause of that when he already has a long-standing relationship with a man he describes as his husband. Yeah. And written in his own hand correspondence um, where he's detailing sexual acts that he's performed on many other men kind of undermines that idea that he was an innocent up until this point. Yeah, and I mean, pure. I'm not judging the man. If that's what he wants to do, we were all slutty in our twenties. That's fine. You you do you, but don't then try to claim that some poor lord who was just trying to give you somewhere <laughs> to stay for the summer had somehow seduced you, you seduced. into this lifestyle. He was so good I at seducing. He seduced me 15 years before the event. Very heavy hand in this. Oh yes, but despite all of these, you know logical fallacies that were highlighted the prosecution barrister mr roberts he just pressed on and kept using phrases like corruption perverted wicked unnatural and it was quite obvious that the trial was pretty much a foregone conclusion yeah things like um the three defendants had decided that they were gonna try and keep um saying no to proposed jury members until they had a good mix of men and women because they felt that women would be more sympathetic to the the argument okay. which was that you can have um, a sensitive relationship with another man that doesn't necessarily need a sexual element you know that you can be emotionally connected with somebody of the mm-hmm. same sex like without a companion. it companion yeah um, and mm-hmm. they found that no women were in the jury pool at all they've been very clear that they wanted Lads, 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 lads to be on the jury. Yeah. Who would yeah, immediately as soon as as soon as you said, Well, no, uh, we were very good friends and we helped each other out and we you know that they'd be like, Oh, you don't talk to your friends about your emotions. That's what yeah. queers do. Yeah. Oh if he at any point said he was there for him, that means they were having sex. <laughs> if you ever need to vent, there it is. He may as well have just <laughs> described it in detail. And as a result of the fact that he felt it was going to be a foregone conclusion, Peter Wildblood decided to make a stand. And rather than claim that he was not a homosexual at all, as his fellow defendants did, 
he openly admitted that he fancied men. And instead, he based his defence on the fact that he had not enticed anyone to become a homosexual. That that's not something that he felt he needed to do. And that the party that he'd been to, that he was accused of doing this at, had in fact been a very boring affair where no one at all had managed to get their end away. (laughs) It was actually one of the parties that was really shit. Yeah, he also pointed out that the affectionate letter that he'd sent to McNally didn't at any point insinuate that they'd ever had a sexual relationship and the only reason he was being accused is because he expressed feelings to another man, which, as far as he was concerned, wasn't illegal. Yeah, because good on him. It, yeah. Worried that the case might not go their way after this revelation of a, a defence that wasn't, I didn't do it, the police took the opportunity of the defendants being somewhere where they knew where they were to try and smear them further by breaking into all of their houses to look for further evidence. Of course. So all three houses were broken into while they were busy being tried. (laughs) And it was kind of an open secret that it had been the police doing it to try and get further evidence. And this is in the 50s, for God's sake. Yeah, this is in the mid-50s. On Wednesday, March 24th, the jury reached a guilty verdict and each of the men was sentenced to prison. Lord Montague for 12 months and Wild Blood and Pit Rivers for 18 months each. So for attending a shit house party where they drank cheap cider... Got 18 months 18 months for that. That's terrible. Peter Wildblood served his sentence in Winchester Prison and then in Wormwood Scrubs. Okay. That's grim. And while the government had got the conviction they'd desperately wanted, the very shaky nature of that conviction caused a public outcry. And even the major papers... Good began to ask if the laws against homosexual behaviour in private needed to be reviewed. Yes. Except the Daily Mail, of course, which were quite happy to defend the status quo. <laughs> yes. They're like, yes, may- maybe he was our journalist and maybe this does seem a bit harsh, but we do need to make sure that we don't start allowing homosexuals the right to exist because that is the slippery slope down which we will tumble. Next thing you know, we'll be joining Europe in some kind of union (laughs) and we'll all be speaking French and we'll have straight bananas. And I just, come on, guys. It's the Daily Mail. Trust us. We know what you need. Peter Wildblood was released after just about a year on Tuesday, March the 8th, 1955. He was welcomed by his friends and family and he immediately set out to use his new notoriety to help the cause of decriminalisation because yes. it was it was a growing movement. Yeah. And he was already, you know, he was already outed. So whereas some of his friends who were still closeted couldn't speak out, he was like, well, my reputation's already, already been done. ruined. I may as well yeah. just ride this Go horse to the it. end. Yeah. Um, he wrote about his life, the trial, and his experience in prison and published a memoir later in the same year called Against the Law, which the New Statesman described as the noblest and wittiest and most appalling prison book of them all, <laughs> which is a good review. Yeah. It was considered a very important explanation of the experience of homosexual men in Britain at the time and fed into the growing feeling that it was wrong to persecute people who were simply trying to live as productive members of society. Yeah. Peter was encouraged to write a second book in 1956 called A Way of Life, where he detailed the lives of 12 anonymous people he knew within the London gay scene and how they managed to balance their sexual preferences with the stigmas attached to it by society. Can you imagine, like, if the government went for every single homosexual, like, ever, like... Mm -hmm. Well, the thing Industries is, a lot collapse. of them were in government. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. There was a proportion in government. When he was arrested at the very start of all of this, and he thought it was... <clears throat> he didn't really appreciate the seriousness. He thought that they were just trying to get him to turn on people. You know, he was just... A yeah. bit like what happened to Reynolds and McNally. He thought that they were just trying to pump him for information, if you'll excuse yeah. the pun. Um to get the names because he was foreign correspondent at the Daily Mail at the time. Yeah. And he he sort of quipped because they asked him, do you know any other homosexuals? 
and he said yes would you like me to start with the members of parliament would you like me to start with um, the members of the clergy or would you like me to start with the members of the judiciary because he was you know it's just like well this can't happen yeah. there are so many people in so many important positions so many respected people mm-hmm. yeah you're not actually going to go through with this as possibly at that point the most famous gay man in the country Peter contributed evidence to the government's Wolfden report of 1957 into the treatment of homosexuality in the country. The report was released later that year and made recommendations to decriminalise homosexuality in the UK, though it would actually take a further 10 years before these recommendations were passed into law. And it was finally okay to do what you wanted to do with another consenting adult in the privacy of your own home. Although you had to be slightly older for the age of consent, obviously. That was it around for a long time. I think it was 21 that they put it in at. Yeah, and that was in the 60s. Mm. 60-something. Amazingly, Peter Wildblood's dad was able to see all of these events unfold. No way. as (laughs) As he only died on December 14th, 1957. The grand old age of 95 years old. Good lad. What a thing to have seen through your life. I know. Peter, finally a completely out gay man, became a television producer in England, having moderate success with some shows on Granada, um, before deciding to emigrate to Canada in the 1980s. Unfortunately, though, he didn't have the same iron constitution as his father, um, and he suffered a stroke in 1994, which left him a non-verbal quadriplegic, which no. is not the best state of affairs to live out your final years. No. He didn't quite manage to see in the new millennium, dying on November 14th, 1999, at the age of... Oh. He was only a strip... He was, he was such a young man. He was only 76 when he died. He had another good oh, yeah. 20 years in him, at least. Yeah, definitely. And that is the story of Peter Wildblood and the Montague Affair, which some people credit with being the beginning of the end for um, laws against same-sex relationships in Britain, despite so it supposedly being the start him? of a crackdown. This is, this is amazing. Like He's obviously a big figure, and mm. Montague, um, and I didn't know anything about it. Oh, until Lord this, Montague, when he left prison, he just went straight back to being who he was, and he uh, founded a jazz festival. Uh, at Bewley he sounds fabulous (laughs) to be honest you can find a picture of him if you search for um, Lord Montague um, on Wikipedia the picture of him is just fantastic is it? it's it's him in his later years but he looks he's still got that twinkle of somebody who's just going to just like say yes to any suggestion that you come up with Uh, he was open to life's experiences was was, uh, Lord Monty Lord Montague Oh, yes. Fabulous. Mm. He he lived to quite an old age then, it looks like it. Yeah, yeah. He did all right for himself. And yeah. the source I used... That's interesting. ...naturally was Peter's own book, Against the Law. Ah, brilliant. Which means it's probably heavily biased towards his point of view, but sod it. I quite like the way he tells his stories. He was definitely a very, very good writer. And very engaging. Yeah. And you're completely on his side because he is... The the one thing about it is he it's written from the point of view of the morality he was brought up with. So he's very apologetic about being homosexual in it. And he does sort of discuss the potential causes, which again are, are sort of, you know, that sort of early 20th century um, moral thinking is in it. Mm. It's such modern history as well, isn't it? It's just like yeah, it's yesterday. This stuff was, yeah, this stuff was only happening in people that we know's lifetime. Oh yeah, it was. Um, my dad and your dad were both um, alive when it was still a crime because my dad was mm-hmm. born in um, the sixties, in sixty, indeed. So yeah, he. And- he would well, have yeah. possibly I been mean, vaguely aware of the Daily Mail losing their shit in 1967 mm-hmm. when uh, the law was passed yeah. and saying it was the you know the beginning of wokeism. Well, both my parents were alive when mm. that was 
Yeah. That was a tear when, when it was illegal. Mm. So um, there you go. An important milestone in British history. I mean, we were miles behind pretty much every other European nation who for decades have been, well, what you do in your own home's up to you, mate. As long as you're not actively, you know, running around a school trying to seduce the, the, the children there, we, we don't care because, you know... It's really bizarre how it came about, though, isn't it? Like, uh, just laws and societal norms in general, because, mm. like, where do they originate from? Like, obviously, there's always been homosexuals, there's always been bisexuals, there's always been straight people mm. forever and a day. So why... Controlling to conform. Get... I mean, you could say that it's, from the working class perspective, it's we need you to continue to create a workforce for us if we allow you guys mm, to just okay. go off and do your own thing from the sort of upper class perspective it's well this is how we maintain power is by making marriage connections and by mm-hmm. you know propagating the next generation so we can't have you going off and following your heart because we're not going to have somebody to take over the family business or we're not going to be able to make that uh, important match to lord daughter you know gertunda yeah. who may have a face like a barn door, but uh, she has very impeccable, you know, pedigree. And we want to marry into yeah. that family, so you can't go off and, you know, follow your heart. You've got to do what's best for the family. For the family. Um, yeah, it's just, it just it baffles me. Mm. Um, and, uh, yeah, it just seems like... I, I mean, obviously, people do still have some views about it. Oh, many! But now it's a protected, protected characteristic and stuff. Although it doesn't mean to say that we won't go backwards at some point. I, mm. I spoke to you earlier, didn't I, off off air about um, the death penalty being reinstated in America after it was abolished. So it doesn't mean just because we have laws yeah. and stuff that they won't go backwards. Hi there, it's Emma, Chief Organiser at Consistently Eccentric, here to remind you all that if you like what you hear, you can catch up with all previous episodes and session series by searching for us on Acast, Spotify and iTunes. How fancy. You can also join us on Instagram at Consistently Eccentric Podcast, where we update on the weekly episode and post all of our bonus content for you lucky lot. See you next week.